When it comes to addiction and recovery, everyone has something in common, a story. My name is Pastor Ed Treat, and I am founder and developer of the Center of Addiction and Faith. I've been in recovery from addiction for 34 years, and I've been a Lutheran pastor for 25 years. Throughout my years as a pastor, I've been frustrated that faith communities have paid little attention to an issue that is very pervasive and impacts so many. Addiction takes many forms, and it's a problem requiring a spiritual solution. I believe that the church could have an enormous impact on addiction if they would begin to learn more and do more. This is the mission of the Center of Addiction and Faith, to awaken faith communities to address addiction. Welcome to my story, Stories of Addiction and Grace. Joining me today to share her story of addiction and grace is Pastor Melanie Martin-Dent. Pastor Melanie is the solo pastor of Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Polson, Montana. She lives there with her husband and her horses. I've known Pastor Melanie for more than 30 years now. I first met her at the very first gathering of the Fellowship of Lutheran Clergy in Chicago. She's one of the founding members of that organization. and We've been colleagues ever since. Melanie shared her story with both of us on Zoom and with our producer recording us from Minnesota Podcasting in St. Paul, Minnesota. Here with um, Pastor Melanie Martin Dent, and she's a pastor out in Montana. And I know her because uh, when I was a seminarian, I went to uh, what I heard was a gathering of pastors just to uh, start a ministry in, for alcoholism. And uh, I thought, as a recovering person myself, I got to go to this thing. So I went there. Melanie, representing the ELCA, was hooked up with uh, some guys, some pastors from the Missouri Synod to start this new ministry. And, uh, and so we started our relationship there. So I got to know you there. And so we have been part of this Fellowship of Recovering Lutheran Clergy since then. So our, paths, uh, have, our lives have been tied together for a long time, a lot of retreats together and whatnot. Melanie, you're a pastor. You were one of the you were second generation women to go into the ministry. So you had to experience some of the challenges of paving the way for, for women in ministry. But you're also a recovering person. And that's what we want to hear from you. Hear a little bit about your story as a recovering person. So tell us about yourself. Tell us about a little bit about what it was like for you. I grew up in a nice upper middle class professional family that was impacted by extended family members alcoholism, which was very deeply covered up when I was a child. My grandfather on my mother's side was my, my, my parents described him like a year or two ago as like a fifth of vodka a day kind of guy. He never could hold down a job with the exception as he worked as a prison guard during World War II and they were so desperate for people they kept him on. He did odd jobs. He painted houses. My grandmother fed the family with a giant garden. Uh, they had a tiny little house in the country, well, in a very little town in Northeast Texas. And my grandfather had a fondness for grabbing people inappropriately to the degree that when he was in the nursing home, he was like 96 years old, 97 years old. My mother told, uh, told me that he was in trouble for grabbing the nurses. So then on my dad's side of the family, there was always a lot of chaos around my uncle, who was my father's 
older brother. He had a oldest, the oldest child was his sister and then the ne'er-do-well brother. And then my dad was the youngest kid. And my dad also is on the autism spectrum, although that was not really officially known till after, till many, many, many years later. When I was young, there were like hour long screaming matches on the telephone over what to do with Ike. Apparently they finally got, he and his sister finally uh, convinced my grandmother who is a world world champion codependent uh, to, that he should go to a treatment program. So he was, dad talked about taking airplanes. It took him 11 hours to get him from Dallas to Virginia. And he had to go like to Chicago and to New York and to Virginia and wait in the airports. It took forever. And before he was back from that flight, my grandmother was on the road to go pick him up from treatment and rescue him. That's the extended family context. When I was really little, my dad was also a physician. His father had built a clinic and then died actually just before, shortly before I was born. So my dad and his sister, well, I was gonna say they inherited the clinic, but then mom said, said again, very recently that, that my grandmother actually built the clinic for her oldest child, her, um, his older sister to practice. But she ended up with a child with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. She also married a physician. And so this was a two physician family. And um, she gave up practicing to take care of my cousin, who is very much my, very close to my age, like six months apart. And my dad ended up with the clinic. So I, I describe, describe particularly my father's family as they were physicians or drug addicts. They were overachiever physicians. Um, so my, my uncle actually was known, he was a chief of, of, of surgery at the hospital that President Kennedy was taken to. And he was in Houston delivering uh, a speech and he, they flew him home to make the announcement that the president had died. Every time you're in an emergency room, they hang a bag of saline solution to your, at your arm. That was Tom's contribution to medicine. So, so it's overachievers and drug addicts yep. and drunks. I mean, you know, no middle ground. Yeah. So when I was really little, my, my mom worked in the clinic. And so I was really raised by my father's mother and by the big black nannies uh, who were housekeepers and babysitters. And then when I was seven, we moved to the Seattle area and, I, and my grandmother was really my primary attachment figure. She was the one who, who got me and appended to me and nurtured me and loved me unconditionally. And my parents were, you know, my parents. Mm. And so it was a huge trauma when Kennedy was assassinated. I was in a classroom in this town where I'd already been teased and shamed for being different, for having a Texas accent and not knowing how things worked, the new kid in town stuff. And then that came over the loudspeaker. What you need to know is my grandmother and I both rooted for Kennedy and my parents voted for Nixon. He was my president with my grandmother and my president was shot in my grandmother's town, my hometown, with my uncle attending at the hospital. This was really personal. All of the grief of the loss of that relationship and all of the, the shame and humility. I cried and you know just wailed in a classroom. The kids laughed and taunted. I ran out of the room to the bathroom to hid. Um, my teacher went out there and made me come back in the classroom. The kids taunted me more. I went home. I tried to explain it to my parents. 
And my mother says, you don't really understand what a serious situation for our country this is. And that was my emotional support. Mm. That's the easiest way to describe my childhood. So when I was in eighth grade, it was a drug education class where there was someone who came to speak from a, a recovery center. And this was a old time, hardcore, confrontative, tear you down to build you back up kind of place. And I think it was a her story of her addiction. And for the first time in my life, I heard somebody talk about what I felt inside. I related totally to her, but I did not get the message. That, and I loved the story about recovery. That's what I wanted for my life. But I did not get the message. That what I got was, okay, if I go do this addict thing, I can get that and be re and, and get recovery. So people say in meetings, they didn't set out to become an addict or an alcoholic. I really did. I really consciously made a decision that day that that was who I was and that was who I was going to be. And that's how my life was going to get better. And I also, at the same time, I figured if I killed enough brain cells, I'd fit in at school better and things would be easier. And I have, I, I call him my AA brother, someone who was, was newly in the program when I was newly in the program. And we both share that in our stories of intentionally trying to kill brain cells. So I actually, my drug use really started with going through my father's medicine, my parents' medicine cabinet, my father's doctor bag. He still had his, but by that time he'd become an anesthesiologist, but he still had his black, you know, the classic black doctor bag from private practice. They had a variety of interesting substances in it. And I took his copy of the physician's desk reference and I went through the cabinet and the bag and decided what looked like it was going to be interesting and tried to configure out like how much above the recommended dose would be fun without giving to overdose rate. That mm -hmm. would be Melanie's actual yeah. <laughs> story. So you, you jokingly say, you know, we set out to kill brain cells, but looking back now with what you know now, wouldn't you, would you say you were just trying to numb the pain? I was trying to numb the pain and I was trying to fit in socially. And so I thought if I wasn't, if I wasn't the smart kid, maybe they'd like me better. So I had, I had difficulties at home and I had difficulties with peers and it seemed like a solution to everything. So yes, yes, drugs were my solution to the pain of my life. And of course I ran out of drugs at home. And so then I had figured out I had to hang out with the kids at school that had the drugs. And the way I sort of got into that was starting smoking and hanging out at the smoking corner. And then I became uh, this, this, the shoplifter of wine. So I, um, had quite the routine of the, of the local grocery stores of going in and picking up and leaving with a bottle of wine that I then would share with my, my, my male druggy friends. And that got me enough in the club that I could get everything. So I said, I describe my teenage, my teenage addict alcoholic years is the short way to do it is that they say, if you have, if your drinking and using causes you problems in any area of your life, then you have a problem. And before I got into college, this is, I had, you know, I had legal problems. I arrested, was arrested twice. One was for shoplifting and one was for driving when I was very high and also only had a learner's permit and not actual driver's license. My white privilege is that I ended up being released to my grandparents' care instead of going to juvenile hall. This guy terrified me, he intimidated, he bullied me. I was strip searched. Um, I lied about my name, I lied about my phone number. He finally came in two or three hours later. And this is like, 
you know, three in the morning and said, either you tell me your right name or your phone number, or I'm taking you to juvenile hall, at which time I told him my right name and my phone number, because I was terrified of going to juvenile hall. But I'm sure if I had been a kid of color, I would have gotten to that point a whole lot earlier. <laughs> so that was legal problems. It became a huge family issue. And my dear codependent family. So by the time I was uh, the summer after I graduated from high school, I got grounded every week by my mother while I stood stood and leaned against the wall of the house trying not to puke and not to pass out until she was done yelling at me. She would ground me for six months. And by the next week, I would convince her that I had to go and I would promise I would be home by 10 o'clock and not drink anything, knowing full well I had no intention. I was never drunk enough at 10 o'clock to face my mother. Um, (laughs) And we did this like every week. So... My dad came up to me that summer and said, well, you know, I just hope you live long enough to grow out of this phase uh, before you kill yourself. And he also, the other time was, but just don't drink and drive, call for a ride. But I couldn't call for a ride when I promised I would not drink and be home at 10 o'clock. That just violated the rules of the game. So um, I had health problems. So legal problems, family problems, health problems. I changed my major in college. Well, I was in the hospital when I was supposed to do my audition for my music, the music program. And so they postponed it. And my first several months of college were such serious drinking and drugging that I did not pick up my instrument. I played so badly, I was too ashamed to call and find out how I did at the audition. And I changed my major. That's a good addict, alcoholic way of handling things. Quit. Run. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that part of my life, it was just so clear. You know, I fit all the classic definitions, you know, of work problems. I worked at McDonald's was my first job. So are you aware during these, these uh, through all this, that you, you've got a problem? Are you like, I, I know I, no. I don't care. No. Do you really think you were doing fine? I was doing fine. Okay. I, I met a guy who was 21 and, and, and always had alcohol. Uh, so I thought I'd marry him. I <laughs> said uh, so my work problems was I worked at McDonald's and I went from having the best performance reviews you could have in every category to the worst performance reviews you could have in every category and one night after a party involving my coworkers, involving stopping by the store um yes so you know I just want to put those on the record. That's my easiest way of describing what my drinking and drugging was like then. It just was the classic teenage out of control drinking and drugging thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, throw on the sex thing too. I managed to get myself raped by a guy twice um, who I was smoking dope with. And he says, come on, smoke dope with me. I won't do it again. <laughs> 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 Why do you uh-huh. trust drug addicts, Melanie? Uh, you know, and and really by the by the first the first quarter of college, uh, I found the easiest way to keep myself in supply was find a lot of parties with a lot of a lot of beer and a lot of dope and sleep with someone. You know, not your normal pastoral background, but your mm-hmm. normal addict alcoholic background. Uh, so I wasn't spending vast amount of money. I just was essentially exchanging the use of my body. And I was very dissociated and very not present for all of that. It was, you know, and I felt like I was prostituting myself for my drugs. And then I kind of hit, I hit what I call my first bottom. 
And I prayed what I call my, to whom it may concern, first prayer. So I wasn't really, I wasn't raised in the church, but it went kind of, it went like, to whom it may concern, God, if you are out there, help. I'm either going to have to kill myself or something's going to change. Okay. And then after that, I met Ron, who I'm still married to. <laughs> now, this is like one of the amazing miracles of life. He was even older. He was like 23. And <laughs> being of legal drinking age was a really important quali qualification for me to be interested in you as a man. Okay? How, old are you, how old are you then? 17. Oh, my. I graduated from, from high school when I was 17. Wow. By any method of anything any of us now know, there's no way this relationship should have worked, all right? Because I was 17 and drunk, and he was 23 and going through a divorce for his first wife. The fact that we have been married 45 years no. is mostly attributed, I think, to both of our codependency and that neither of us was willing to give up. Stubbornness, ego, codependency. You know, even if there were times that were there were rough patches where where breakup was under consideration, but neither of us wanted to say uncle and let go of that. So, so anyways, after that, I call that my, that was my first hitting bottom because Ron was the first person who could tell me that I was making it making an ass out of myself um, when I was drinking and I didn't walk out the door and leave forever. Which that happened. Great for help, and God brought Ron into your life. And God brought Ron into my life. Yeah. 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 Uh, <laughs> so that happened New Year's Eve. I mean, we met in the fall, so it was like November. So at New Year's Eve, he told me that my my behavior was really embarrassing. So I gradually began, and it wasn't an intentional. It wasn't like an intentional thing, but I began to switch from the acting out, drinking, and drugging phase of my life to the functioning in society alcoholic phase of my life, which actually was an improvement. It was a huge improvement. I knew where I was when I woke up in the morning. I knew the name of the person I was with when I woke up in the morning. The level of shame and humiliation and anxiety and fear went way down compared to my prior period of drinking and drugging. And I pretty much mostly, I gave up hard drugs and I pretty much, you know, we smoked marijuana, but we were in a house that he had a room and a house. I had a dorm room at the college. I'm 17 still. So I hung out at his house and there was a, there's a lot of, of, of pot around the house, but pot was never my favorite drug. And I really think I'm actually probably allergic to it, or at least something they cut in it. It would always give me terrible headaches and I am allergic to tobacco. I now know that I knew that after allergy testing years later. So I really think probably I was reacting to something in itself. You know, I didn't do nearly as much of that. And I started doing really radical things like getting up in the morning and going to class, doing my own work, not cheating and conniving to get grades. I always had good grades because that was, that's the overachiever part of my family. I knew that as long as my grades were okay, my parents would tolerate my behavior. But if my grades went down, it was going to be ugly. Hmm. So, so yeah, I could get an A in a class with 80. Uh, I actually got an a in a, a in a class, high school history, with 100, 180 thirds of a grade docked from my um, score for coming to class late because I smoked dope on the school on the way to get there and never quite got it done in time. And then I, I did fake extra credit because he, he docked you a third of a grade for every tardy. 
and then you could earn a third of a grade for every extra credit. So I did enough extra credit to get an A, okay? My functioning in society, I actually went to class and I did the work. And, you know, but what happened through that whole period is, uh, and it was really sort of more periodic in many ways, so that something would happen that would be an excuse to drink for three months. I'm on the quarter system, I'm in college. So at the end of the quarter, I go, holy crap, I did it again. And um, then I quit. So there were a variety of feeble excuses from deciding to explore California wineries to yeah, an absolute, <laughs> you know, they were, they were, they were just an excuse to go. And when I was 19, I actually went to London on a study abroad program. And being me, I read articles that said the best food is to be had in the pubs, which mean that I could spend a lot of time in the pubs and I was legal to drink there. So when I came home, you could, I could tell time by my cravings. Because this is my pastor story, in this period of time, we started working. Okay, one of the really, one of the best parts of my childhood was going to summer camp. I went to campfire camp, where people were nice and loving and nurturing and kind. And I still had social problems with my peers, but it was still so much better than the rest of my life. I would have lived at camp if I could have lived at camp. Oh, and yeah, my drinking cost me a job at um, the camp that I grew up at also. They let me finish that summer, but they, they did not rehire me. And it was one day and it was a camper who was a friend that we'd gotten drunk at camp and it was the last night. And all I did was to go see her, but I, I left my cabin and walked to the other end of the camp just to see her. And they'd been watching me the whole time, little, yeah. little. And, and when I did that, that was it. So we were working at a YMCA camp and the camp director's pastor, who was a Lutheran pastor came and did a talk at staff training on what is the C in YMCA. And he basically told the salvation story, which I, this is not my cognitive memory, this is Ron's cognitive memory. I remember he looked at me with the most loving gaze I have ever experienced in my entire life. It was like Jesus himself was looking through his eyes at me, which is what I was looking for my whole life. <laughs> My, my family back when we're Methodist and Baptist in Texas, when my family moved from Texas, we went to the local Baptist church where I was in the Sunday school gluing, gluing pictures of Jesus to a paper plate when my father almost got into a fight with the preacher over the politics in his sermon. And my mother describes it as she spent the whole time going, Wayne, Wayne, Wayne. And hand on his leg, it's like, <clears throat> we never went back there. Then when I was in junior high school, my, my mom had went to an art show at the Unitarian Church, and we went there for a couple of years, and I went to Sunday school, not was a Sunday school at the same time as worship, and we looked at blood through a microscope, and we built a time tunnel, and we dug fossils. We did really cool stuff, but I had no idea what they believed. Um, <laughs> that was my religious upbringing. So anyways, I went to the library, Tacoma Public Library. I randomly checked out a Bible. There were a bunch of them on the shelf. I started reading the Bible because I wanted to check this out before I decided if I wanted to get myself involved in it. Again, this is the academic skeptic part of my upbringing. And what I, I got to about the book of Numbers when I, I just, I couldn't get through Numbers and Deuteronomy. And so then I skipped to the New Testament and I started with the genealogy in Matthew. And I think it was, and now it's summertime. And that summer, I'm working directing a day camp in town for three weeks. I am working, teaching swimming at the, the 
community lessons at the resident camp where Ron is working all summer for another period of time. And then they had co-ed camp and I was working on staff at resident camp that time. So, so during the, the first half of that summer, we saw each other for like 20 and a half hours a week between, and, and we got married by then. So this is like our first summer as newlyweds. And between when the last camper was picked up on Saturday and staff meeting on Sunday was our entire time together all week. You know, there's no cell phones and no conversations during the week. That was it. So during this time, I'm starting to read the Bible. Okay. And it was in the gospel of Luke. It has to be, because I remember thinking this is the same story for a thir the third time. I, this is how naive I came to it. Uh, it's like, wow, why is this the same story? But I had really a spiritual experience one night. And it's like I was reading the Bible. And it was like, it wasn't an audible voice. But it was like an inner voice that said, Melanie, do you believe this? And I said, but, but, but I haven't read the whole book. Melanie, do you believe this? But I'm newly married and there's my husband. And, and I don't know how this is going to affect me. Melanie, do you believe this? Yes. Okay. So this, I hadn't even gotten to all the times in the Bible when these, you know, like feed my sheep three times. It was just really interesting. When I saw Ron, I said, I said, honey, we need to talk. Some things important have been going on. And so he says, okay. And it's like, so I look at him and I'm like, I'm terrified. I say, I think I've become a Christian. <laughs> And he goes, that's great news. I've become a Christian because God was at work in his life at the same time. But what was happening during the first of that half of that summer, some of the, the Christian, and these were really more conservative type evangelical Christians, were meeting at the chapel for Bible study before the kids got up in the morning. And he started going to those Bible studies and renewing his faith. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. The Center of Addiction and Faith will present a new inspirational story about God's saving work every two weeks. I hope you'll subscribe and listen to them all. Along with these podcasts, the Center of Addiction and Faith is offering many other helpful resources. We have our annual conference that brings together today's best and brightest theologians, speakers, authors, scholars, and practitioners in the field of addiction studies. We also offer a monthly webinar on addiction with a special focus on racial issues. We have a growing number of online 12-step recovery and support groups, some specifically just for clergy. We have training events to develop addiction ministry programs. We support advocacy work. We are developing online education for understanding addiction in the context of doing ministry. We offer daily devotions. There's more we want to offer. After our first two successful conferences, there was overwhelming encouragement that I continue to do more of this work. After a long and prayerful discernment, it became very clear this was God calling. In fact, I've never been more sure about what God wanted me to do. What's also clear to me is that I will need a lot of help to make all this happen and keep it going. I don't like asking for help, but I can't do this alone, and I can't get help if I don't ask. So I'm asking, will you please help me do this work? Will you make a donation? Or better yet, will you make a regular monthly commitment of any size to sustain this work over time? Even small gifts given regularly make all the difference. 
If your answer is yes, please go to our website, addictioninfaith.com, and click on the Donate button and help me as I work to help others. Thank you for listening, and God bless you. So you became a Christian. Are you uh, still a drug addict? Yes. Yeah. I still want to, well, it's still really, I mean, my, I would describe my pattern then as periodic alcoholic. Received the call to go to seminary, which I'm going to skip over. And then my first, my first porter at seminary um, was one of my periodic drunk periods. I described that period. I could, I could drink an amazing amount and not consider myself drinking. So I could drink a couple of drinks with lunch. I could drink while I was fixing dinner. I could drink a couple of glasses of wine with dinner and an after dinner glass of wine and a before bed glass of wine and not think I was drinking. Now that counts as drinking in most people's book, but my definition of drinking was, was going to Laval's pizza with some, some classmates and consuming 12 pitchers of beer and come, stumbling home and passing out. That's my definition of drinking. So when I got home from, from seminary, I went to my home church in Bellingham, Washington, which is a place we have in common. Um, I was baptized in Bellingham as an adult when I was in college. I did not know that. Maybe yeah, and received the call to ministry when I was living in Bellingham. Mm -hmm. I saw my pastor at Christmas, and he says, oh, how did you like seminary? And I said, well, yeah, <clears throat> and it's all right. And he goes, well, what's your favorite part of it? And I said, LaValle's. And, and the look in his eyes, and I thought, holy crap, I've done it again. So the next quarter, the next two quarters, I stayed sober by doing things like taking 21 credits and working 20 hours a week at the YMCA and making taking a stained glass class and making three stained glass windows and 27 stained glass crosses, of which I want, I still have and wear as a pectoral cross in worship. Um, most of them have broken, but I still have the last living survivor of that period. So I stayed sober by obsessive activity on everything else. And that summer, Ron and I did a Christian ministry in the national parks. And they're the people who own, you work for the concessioners and then do worship services in the campground on the weekends. And our jobs, the people who we worked for, son who was in their 40s, who couldn't keep a job down in the real world because of his alcoholism was managing the restaurant. And he had a bottle hid, not very hid, in the bathroom. Um, it was interesting. Um, but anyways, he ended up in the hospital one night. They asked us to go do a pastoral call on him. And I realized I have absolutely nothing to offer this man, right? And every, every workshop or talk I'd ever heard about alcoholism or addiction had driven my, driven my anxiety sky high through the roof. So I tended to avoid them. But when I got back, I was registering for class, and it was the old computer cards with the number two pencils filling in the bubbles. There was a class called Pastoral Care of Problem Drinkers. And I said, oh, shit, God, you want me to take this class, don't you? So I say my first surrender there was bubbling in that bubble to take that class. My next surrender was actually going into the classroom the first day because I was terrified. And I, that, was, that was a huge, big thing to actually walk through the door. And the first thing that happened and there was uh, the person who was up around teaching said, hi, my name is blank and I'm an alcoholic and I'm a pastor of Christ Lutheran Church and such and such a town in the Bay Area. And that was the beginning of the end. <laughs> because the fact he was a pastor and he was an alcoholic in recovery, he didn't share his whole story. He got sober in Hawaii, Ed. Um, 
Believe it or not, that just always amazes me. People say, you got sober in Berkeley, California. I say, he got sober in Hawaii. But yeah, so we were assigned to go to three AA meetings and role play AA in class. And we were reading textbooks on alcoholism. And every week I'm having this, you know, every class, yeah, I think it was maybe the class only met once a week. I said, I need to talk to you after classes. Kate, like I read all those, I read the reading for the week and like I did all that stuff when I was 15. What does that mean? He says, keep coming, keep, keep reading, come back next week. You know, and play, role playing AA was like excruciating. Now, my first AA meeting, I actually rode my bicycle too, and I had no idea. It was like 10 miles away. It was way further than I thought it was. I got there late, but it was an experience very much like I'd had in eighth grade. For the, fir- the second time in my life, I heard people talking out loud about my interior world, you know, the telling my story, the identification. And the identification was incredibly powerful. I just didn't want to be an alcoholic. And I really didn't want to quit drinking. <laughs> so it was kind of a struggle for a few months. And see, I knew, I knew at a really deep level that I was, that this was, I knew this was true. I knew that everything they were saying about where this road was going was true. I'd gone enough down that road in my younger days that you really didn't have to convince me the ends were jails, institutions, and death. I got it, but I just didn't want it to be true. So I had this little in and out kind of period. This was one of the places where marriage almost crumbled. He goes, why are you acting so crazy? Um, and anyways, eventually on the day of epiphany, I, I actually had called the man who taught I, he was my unofficial sponsor. I had an official sponsor who was a woman because I was at a meeting, AA meeting, and someone said, is she your sponsor? And I said, no. And they said, you should be. She should be. So I asked her to be my sponsor. But I really kind of had, he was also really my sponsor too. Anyways, I was talking to him and I was, I hit another surrender point of where I was willing. And, and by the way, wanting Knowing you're an alcoholic and not wanting to be one and sort of trying to half-ass stay sober until you have some excuse to get drunk. In Berkeley, California, where the booze is a, a hard liquor is at the front of the grocery store, every bus has a billboard about alcohol on it, and the world is full of triggers. It was not easy. So I finally kind of got sooner and I said, okay, well, I'll do whatever it takes. And I will tell this part of my story because people say it doesn't work. He recommended I go to a doctor and ask for an abuse. And people say an abuse doesn't work. But for me, it was my commitment pill. I took my, I made my commitment in the morning to, to God and my body to stay sober that day when I took that pill. And I finally stayed sober long enough to have a little acceptance about being an alcoholic to being in the program. Um, I was mad at God about this whole thing. I was really mad because I, God, you did this to me. You made me take that class. You made me learn about alcoholism. How, God, you're so mean. How can you want me to be healthy and sane and have a good life and not destroy my marriage and my career in the pits of addiction? Yeah, that was me. I actually wrote a poem in early sobriety. It's, it starts out like, Lord, why must I always be like Jonah, hearing your word quite clearly and running away in fear? Teach me to stay. Teach me to wait for a better day. I mean, that the end has shifted a little on that, but that was literally me. So I ended up really using the group as my higher power and stayed sober long enough to actually want to stay sober and and to get through the absolute worst, you know, for the the worst six to nine months of my obsessive, compulsive, alcoholic addict behavior. 
I mean, I became a pastor. I had good calls. I had bad calls. Um, I had times of trauma in our family. Um, you know, my daughter was molested by one of the kids in my church. His mother was my babysitter. He was in confirmation class. Early sobriety almost killed our marriage. Dealing with that almost killed our marriage. But as I say, we were both too, too codependent to let go <laughs> and too stubborn. So life went on. There were some really good times. There were some really hard times. My other kid had some pretty severe mental health issues growing up. The one kid is on the autism spectrum. That's how we all learned about autism. My, my nephew's on the autism. Raising my kids was, was probably the, the next toughest thing in my life, along with getting sober. Um, but there were also some wonderful, good times. Um, so music that I gave up in college came back to me when I was serving a church in Anaconda. Uh, I was playing flute at a nursing home worship service and the activity director there, assistant activity director, whose husband and daughter were in the symphony said, you, you're good enough, you should play in the symphony. So I had a chance to audition and now I've been playing in the Butte Symphony for years. I've had some wonderful times with, with, with I got involved in horses. That's been another lovely passion. I've had some great times as ministry as well as some, as some difficult times. But throughout all of this, particularly when my daughter was molested and uh, my son was in crisis, I had a number of episodes of frank PTSD, which I didn't mm. know what was. And in the last few years, really, well, the latest, the latest uh, version of this was the first, about the time of the first Addiction and Faith Conference. And two things happened simultaneously, um, which is in this call, which <clears throat> is a congregation that, that was coming off a really troubled, troubled history. Um, the behavior of, of my office manager absolutely triggered some of my church trauma and a very, very difficult ending to a former church. And my anxiety level was already rising and going out of control. And then there was a hearing for a certain man who is now a Supreme Court justice. Who And I heard the person who was testifying that he had um, raped her when, you know, at a party. I've been at that party. That is my that is a piece of my story. And when I heard it was like a 10 second, 15 second sound bite, that tripped me into total PTSD. So I was just struggling to actually be present and function the first addiction and faith conference. I'm very good at faking it, covering up. I had a long, long life experience with that, my entire life of trying to appear functional when I was crumbling inside. At the end of that that week, I was in the lobby of a the Double Tree Hotel in Bloomington. And I was talking to someone at the conference who was from Atlanta. And my AA brother, who was my best friend back in early sobriety in Berkeley, he was a graduate student in chemical engineering while I was a seminary student, lives in Atlanta. I thought, I wonder how Mark is doing. And so I ended up looking him up on Facebook Messenger and reconnecting with him in the midst of this PTSD spiral. And I finally tell him what's going on. And he says, Melanie, you been to an ACA meeting? And I said, well, once in the 90s, that was when my daughter was molested and I did some codependency program then. But it's like, I just didn't really feel like- adult children. Adult children of alcoholics. And I really didn't feel like I related then. And my family had never been honest about the alcoholism and addiction in their lives. I mean, I've only learned that relatively recently in my 60s, that background I started with. And it tells you something about the disease. So uh, anyways, I ended up going to a meeting there. I ended up um, going back to a therapist who I'd worked with 
when my son was still in high school, who's 90 miles away from where I live in and doing some pretty intense trauma work. And this is a whole new chapter of recovery for me. And see, I really wanted to get to this because it's been a time of uncovering and peeling the onion and healing a lot of that deep stuff that goes way, 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 way back. You know, I've always sort of minimized. It's like, I didn't have the exterior signs of abuse to be able to, I have language for it. Um, at the, but I couldn't go to anybody. I mean, I knew I was in deep pain when I was, you know, 12 and 13 and all that, but I couldn't talk about it. And it wasn't like somebody was beating me up. There were bruises, but my therapist says that was extreme emotional neglect, Melanie, and your trauma story is as bad as anybody else I work with. That was a new window on my life. I knew I was in great, huge emotional pain. I knew I was very isolated. I knew I needed help and did not know how to get help, but it was, it was all this trauma stuff. So this has been, this has been just a huge blossoming of a new chapter recovery for me. So this is like almost another story. So part of, I'm taking time. It's like, I have, so I have these two, this, it's one recovery journey and one story. And I was finally at the point where I could actually be honest and face and look at this. When I was introduced to some of these issues, I found my notebook from this codependency workshop I went to in the 90s. And the things I wrote in it are all the same trauma stuff I was working on here, but I was still in so much denial and just really didn't process it then. I finally kind of got a point where I was, I was strong enough and healthy enough to actually be able to do this recovery work which has been the most intense work I've done in a long time. It has also been the most healing work I've done in a long time. And I've been able to reclaim a lot of joy in a lot of places in my life that I didn't even realize wasn't there. I think our marriage is better than it ever has been. I think we're closer and enjoying each other's company in ways we never have been. I'm seeing ways in which it would have been nice to have some of this on board when I was raising my kids, I see the impact on, on them and their lives. I have a son who turns to me and when he's in crisis. And I have a daughter who turns to me and talks to me, you know, and the therapist I'm working with now worked with my son when he was a kid. And he says, you did a wonderful job with those kids, especially considering your own history and your own issues and your own background. So um, you didn't have that. You didn't have that, but now you can provide it. Right. Yeah. So that makes well, it, difference. So, um, how's this been in the church for you as a pastor and being right. a person? How's that? Uh, how's that played out? You are you pretty you're pretty open with about who you are, and most clergy who are in recovery aren't that open. Uh, well, and I didn't start that way. Right. Okay. I didn't start that way. So again, in in 1982, when I was ordained, I had a couple years of sobriety under my belt enough skeptics at my first call about being a woman in ministry that I just didn't feel safe to share at all. And it was really when I got my 10 year, I had my 10 year anniversary of sobriety and I said 10 years is long enough. I should feel a little bit safer about being. And I actually, I talked about it in a sermon and I still played down my story a lot. I mean, I, I softened it a good bit and there were some people who were shocked and horrified and some people like it bounced off their head and like, you know, offer me a beer the next week. And it was not a good experience for me in any way, shape or form that, you know, the soft story version fuels my denial, but it still had all the anxiety of being honest with people that I don't quite trust. Um, so I didn't do that again for a long time. Um, actually, 
So the next, and then at 10 years, that's when the FRLC was founded. Cause I went, there was an AA international convention in Seattle and which I went to a clergy meeting there and said, Oh, I need this. This is what I needed. And oh, so long, but it, it wasn't, and it was, wasn't all, it wasn't all Lutherans. And it was like, there were nuns and priests and Pentecostal preachers. And, you know, I thought I need this. And then there was an ELCA meeting in Seattle at the same time, or me. And I saw the director of the division of ministry at the time and talked to him and said, what could we do to establish this in our church? And he advised me, he goes, start really small, just build a network. Um, you know, your closest friends, the people, you know, and, but you don't want it to be part of the official church structure. So I started a newsletter and I basically sent it to everybody I knew who was in recovery. Um, and I sent one to Park Ridge Hospital, to some treatment centers. So I sent, I think one to Hazelden. I think I sent one to Park Ridge Hospital in, in the Chicago area. And there it crossed the desk of a man who knew the Missouri Synod pastor who was um, on the e Missouri Synod young pastor on the East Coast in Virginia, uh, Rich Hill, um, who had started work in the Missouri Synod to fund, he'd been to a Raqqa, an Episcopal retreat. And he says, we need this in the Lutheran church. So he got a Wheat Ridge grant to launch the Fellowship of Recovering Lutheran Clergy. And that was the Luther seal as the, as the logo. And they had someone from the natural church, national church. They had a district superintendent. Um, and so anyways, they, have, they were doing the structural organizational money piece. I was building a network. So we crossed over the desk of a chaplain at this hospital and said, you two need to talk to each other. And so we got on the phone and we talked and I was invited to, they had money for a board meeting. They had in-person board meetings in the Midwest, um, Iowa, places like that. And so there was me and seven Missouri guys in suits and ties and white shirts. Um, I'm not really a suit and tie and white shirt kind of <clears throat> gal. So that was an interesting experience. Also a denomination that doesn't have any women pastors. So doesn't have women pastors, no. And we had, but we had wonderful, we all told our first step stories and we all bonded and we planned this first retreat at Mundelein, which was where I met you and where the group did its first of many rebellions against the planned agenda. Um, <laughs> the outside speaker thing never so, worked um, for us. So now what is the church, uh, what's the church need to learn about? I mean, what's your sense for how well, church understands this issue and and how it responds to it we we just we need to learn to have the church needs to learn how to be a safe place to talk about real stuff that's going on to your life after 10 years i put i put the frlc in my mobility form so but it still wasn't really talked i mean so it was known but it was not really talked about too much i had one call in idaho where they were really interested and really affirmed it and they had a huge methamphetamine problem in the 90s um which is really not any different than the methamphetamine problem on the reservation today here. I heard law enforcement talk, I'm saying that's the exact same thing that was going on in Pearson Weehite in the 90s when I was there. This church is on a reservation and they had had, had a long-term pastor who they had a very troubled and very destructive ending of that ministry. They had an 18 month interim, but they're on a reservation. There's huge drug and alcohol issues in the community. They, they were talking, they, so they talked about that being something they wanted to explore in ministry. When I, 
when I got here and got to know people, this was not really a burning desire of the actual rank and fire members of the congregation. This was one of those call committee ideas of what we should put up, put on the paper so that we look like we're outreaching congregation, a missional congregation that was concerned. Yeah, not really. Um, well, I mean, that's just so people listening know that a lot of congregations will put, uh, identify themselves in a certain way, but um, in reality, they rarely match what they what they put, they want to attract the pastors. So they want, they, you know, they say they're doing all these things that they would like to do, but aren't really doing. And when you get there, they don't really want to do those things. <laughs> I mean, it's right. And, and, and I had been in trouble, got myself in trouble in ministry by believing what was in the paperwork. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. acting on it in a, in a earlier situation. And that ended up just absolutely blowing up in my face, which is a piece of my church trauma stuff. Um, so I knew enough and had been around the block enough to say, I'm going to go find out what's here. But I had, I had one person say, you know, I'm really into this and that they're ready to, willing to give money to like the addiction and faith conference to have scholarships and they wanted to do it, but, but, you know, at arm's length. So it's been a really cool opportunity and I'm going to totally plug this Ed, uh, through the addiction and faith conference in the beginning of the center of addiction and faith and the partnership with faith partners. Because over time, I've, I've, be, I've had a chance to identify there are a few people in the congregation who really are interested in this ministry. I can tell by how they respond to my Facebook post when I put my 40th AA birthday card on my Facebook post. <clears throat> I can, you know, one of, one of them uh, lost a sister-in-law to alcoholism a year ago, and I board my horses at her house. And so, you know, we have a lot of just conversations you'd have with a friend rather than in the church conversations. Because of, because of COVID and because of the Zoom era, I thought Faith Partners would be a wonderful ministry model for this congregation. But the cost of bringing them out to Montana for a training for three or four or five people was prohibitive. And I'm not, I don't think the congregation would have supported, this congregation had missing funds and, and the la- that what happened in the earlier tenure and was very concerned about, they have a lot of resources, but they're very nervous about spending money, as many churches are. Yeah. And I don't think they would have ever approved that. But because Faith Partners, in partnership with the Center of Addiction and Faith, was able to offer this training online, I was able to get a couple of the people who I knew had recovery interests and ties to come to the introductory workshops in July. One of them said, you know, this is very doable. And then one was is fairly early in her recovery at this point and said, you know, I can't continue with this. I'm not ready. And she's she's very shy in a very, you know, not in the center of the church world church member. She said, I I I need to not do this now. But I had one gung-ho person and we were able to gather the other people and we just completed the team. What their focus, what we've talked about so far, we're still working on our mission statement with that. It's really doing some education of the congregation of how can you help the people in your life? What are the resources to develop a literature wrap? Probably some, you know, addiction awareness Sunday kind of things just and really just to try and get to the point where people feel like they can actually talk about it in the congregation. One of the people on that team said, you know, when my husband was in the throes of alcoholism, I had no one I could talk to in my church. And I went to talk to the pastor and the pastor didn't know what to say to me. 
another person had a son who dealt with addiction from the time he was 13 on. And she says, I couldn't talk about it at church. I had no support there whatsoever. And, and the thing that, that, that just made my heart sing about faith partners is sometimes in the church and like even the call committee thought addiction ministry is something that we are going to do for them out there. Mm-hmm. And when I, when I saw that the continuum about who was in your congregation and their various patterns of use and attitudes, and this is a ministry to the congregation, I started advocating that we put it in our congregation care committee instead of our outreach committee. That that's, you know, to really work at our own understanding and our own climate in the congregation. And if we could talk about those issues, maybe we could talk about some of the other issues that haunt this con. This congregation has skeletons in the closet that they cannot talk about. And maybe we can have some healing around some of the other issues in the congregation if we can get where we can be honest about this. So at this point, I've been I've been much more open in this church than I ever have. And I've talked about I, I've included like steps in my sermon like this. This is like I'll be talking about something and this is like the amend steps in the 12 step program, you know, or. So it's been a lot more integrated here than it has mm-hmm. ever in my life before. Well, I mean, there's so many layers to this. I mean, there's so much. I mean, you, you got into a whole new area of talking about. Uh, PTSD and how most and most people in recovery after they've been in recovery for a while begin to realize that there's a lot more work to do I mean there's more um, usually addiction is related to pain um, covering pain and so that pain is still there unresolved and so um, you can only live with it so long before it starts to rear its head and you either go back to drinking which is what a lot of people do or you deal with the pain and and get well um but it's a it's a lifelong process i'm still dealing with it you are too and and uh, there's great hope if you deal with it and not so much hope if you don't <laughs> thanks melanie my story of addiction and grace is a podcast production of the center of addiction and faith which can be found online at addictionandfaith.com If you'd like to ask Pastor Ed Treat or one of our Pastor Upcoming guests a question that will be aired on a future show, simply call 612-352-9177 and leave a message. Please know that when you leave a message, it may be used in whole or in part on a future podcast episode. Again, that phone number is 612-352-9177. Please hit subscribe on whatever podcast source you found us on and rate and review our show. We love to hear feedback. My Story of Addiction and Grace is recorded at the studios of Minnesota Podcasting, located in St. Paul, Minnesota. Find them online at mnpodcasting.com. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views, opinions, or policies of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Center of Addiction and Faith, Minnesota Podcasting, or any other religious or business organization.